Well, I'm really thankful you're here today. We're beginning a series of teaching lessons on the subject of homosexuality, which is a very relevant and important topic today, and I want to, to help you as a follower of Christ. And so that's my prayer for this series. And I think you'd agree, agree with me, it would be an understatement to say that homosexuality has been in the news a lot lately. Ever since uh, you know, the Supreme Court, uh, the end of June, ruled that gay marriage was constitutional and therefore legal in all 50 states, it seems that every day there's a new story of some kind uh, on the television, in the newspaper, etc. And, and just, just this past week, just recent days, there's the story uh, from Jerusalem. They were having a gay pride parade and a man stabbed six uh, of the people in that parade, seriously injuring a couple of them. And what was even more interesting to me was this was this was a man who 10 years earlier had done the same thing, stabbed people at a gay pride parade in Jerusalem, been in prison, recently gotten out. And so he attacked the marchers again. And obviously what he did was uh, sinful and was, was wrong. Um, earlier this week I was doing some research and came across an article in uh, one of the newspapers in Kentucky about county clerks and marriage licenses and some of the controversy there. And, and they, they described the, the new marriage license. Now, being a preacher, I, I do weddings. And uh, traditionally, you've got two sections, one for the groom with the name and all the information, one for the bride with the name and all of the information. So in Kentucky, do you know what the new marriage license now says? One section is the first party and the other section is the second party. Now, you know, it sounds like a, some kind of legal contract rather than a covenant of love and commitment. That it's just, just interesting. So that got me thinking, what do the new marriage license in South Carolina say? So I've got it for you. Uh, historically here, it's the same as in Kentucky. Section for the bride, section for the groom. In South Carolina now, the marriage license has two sections. Each section has three check boxes, and you check the appropriate box. One box is bride, one box is groom, and the other is spouse. And so it'll be interesting to see what each state does with marriage license going forward. Uh, last Friday, I think it was, in the state of Texas, the state Supreme Court ruled against the city of Houston. The city of Houston has a, a, an openly uh, lesbian mayor, and she and the council some time ago passed an ordinance that was very, very aggressive in its gay friendliness, if you will, and uh, one of the... Uh, one of the results of that ordinance that they passed was that um, that people, whatever their sex, can use whichever restroom out in public. And there were other issues, so a lot of people in the community didn't like some of that and started a petition to have a to put the the referendum on the, you know the ballot to repeal that ordinance. It was led by pastors and others, and they they garnered more than 50,000 signatures to put this issue on the ballot. They only needed 17,000, but the city ignored it and said, no, we're not going to do it anyway. So there was a lawsuit involved, made its way to the Supreme Court, and the state Supreme Court told the city of Houston, you are wrong, usurping your, you're, you're claiming more constitutional authority than you have, and you're given to a certain day in August to either repeal the ordinance or put it on the ballot so the public can vote on it. Uh, and then earlier this week, Monday, I think it was, the Boy Scouts, the uh, national leadership of the Boy Scouts, uh, repealed their prohibition against uh, homosexuals uh, being leaders in local Boy Scout troops. Now, they did continue leaving it up to the local unit to determine what kind of unit they would be. So each unit can decide if they will have homosexual leaders or not have homosexual leaders for that unit. But what was interesting to me also was a quote from Chad Griffin, who's the 
president of the Human Rights Campaign, which is one of the most uh, uh, vocal lesbian and gay rights uh, advocacy groups. And here's what, what he said about that. He said, including an exemption for troops sponsored by religious organizations because 70% of Boy Scout troops are sponsored by religious groups. And so they said if those religious groups choose not to have gays as leaders, they can continue doing that, but nationally we won't prohibit it. So what he said was, including an exemption for troops sponsored by religious organizations undermines and diminishes the historic nature of today's decision. Discrimination should have no place in the Boy Scouts period. So if you really want to know what the leaders of the homosexual movement in America think, religious exceptions are not important. He basically said that in pretty clear terms in his response to what the Boy Scouts did. He said they didn't go far enough. And so these and a lot of issues are going to continue to be in the public for quite some time in the future, probably beyond my lifetime, to be, to be honest with you. And so what I wanted to do was teach. This sermon series, if you want to know what, what I'm after, what I'm really trying to accomplish, just look at the title. Homosexuality, a biblical response to a changing culture. I want to help us as followers of Jesus Christ think biblically. Think biblically about the issue about homosexuality and, its, and homosexual behavior itself, what the Bible says about it. But I want us to also be able to think biblically when we have conversations with other people and to have those conversations in the right way. I want us to understand the issues and not just have a knee-jerk reaction. So this sermon series is not about, you know, amens and anger or anything of that nature. It's about us learning so we can be effective as the followers of Jesus Christ, both in how we live, how we think, and how we deal with people, how we communicate with people, how we witness to people. And I want to begin by stating the obvious. Everybody knows this, so let me just get it out, okay? Everybody knows that historically Christianity has said homosexual behavior is sinful. Everybody knows there are verses in the Bible that say homosexual behavior is a sin. So here's what we're going to do. Next Sunday morning, we're going to look at five or six Bible passages, the key passages, that talk about the issue of homosexuality, what the Bible says about it. But we're going to go a step further. I'm going to share with you what those in liberal denominations liberal Christians who believe homosexuality is okay, is acceptable, is not a sin. I'm going to share with you how they deal with those verses. I'm going to share with you from their own sources, their own words, what they say about those Bible verses. Because I want you to understand what Scripture says, but I also want you to understand what other people do with those verses so you can be informed and have conversations from an informed position, but especially for our younger people, our younger adults and our teenagers and college students and stuff, because you're going to hear stuff, see stuff in the years to come. You can go to the websites and find all kinds of information. I want you to be informed enough that you can have an intelligent conversation and not be fooled by inaccurate information. So we're going to talk about those things. The third Sunday, we're going to answer some basic questions that most people are asking. Is a person born gay? Can a gay person change? I've got a gay friend. They're getting married. Should I go to the wedding? If Jesus were here today, what would he say about gay marriage? And any number of other issues and questions that are out there today, we're going to talk about those from a biblical perspective. Now, what I want to do today, though, is I want to lay a foundation. Near us, there's a new house being built, and they spent several days 
digging the footers, pouring the footers, and building the foundation before they started building the house. So next week, the next two weeks, we're going to build the house. But today I want to lay a good foundation. Otherwise, the house will be wobbly, if you will. I want to, um, I want to help you understand what the Bible tells us about God's design for sexuality. God's design for marriage. Here's the thing. I do not believe you can fully understand what God says about homosexuality as well as other sexual sins unless you have a a, a big picture view, if you will, a big picture perspective, the right foundation of what God says about human sexuality, about human relationships, about human marriage. Because everything that God says about sexual sin grows out of what God says about human sexuality. Remember, God is the one who created sex. So what does God say about sexuality? What does God say about marriage? Only then can we understand what he says about homosexuality as well as adultery and other sexual sins. Now, one more thing before I get started. I want to strongly encourage you to be here all three Sundays for this series. There's a reason. If you miss one sermon in the series, your understanding of what I'm trying to teach you will be incomplete. And because it will be incomplete, there's a possibility that at some point it will be inaccurate. So I want you to be here. Now, if for some reason you can't be, we've got kids going off to college. We've got people who have vacations planned, work. I get that. You go to our website. All of these sermons will be posted on the website very, very quickly, Sunday afternoon, Monday. And you can listen to it, watch it. Not just listen, you can actually watch it. Um, You know, you can download it, all of that stuff. And if you don't have any of that, then the week, the Sunday, a week later, you can watch it on CN2 at 9 o'clock in the morning or 9 o'clock at night. So you've got no reason. Um, if you don't have TV, let us know and we'll invite you to somebody's house who has TV, okay? We'll, we'll figure out a way. So I don't want you to miss anything because I want you to have a complete grasp of what we're trying to teach. And I, I, I'm going to be honest. I, I could spend a lot more than three weeks. Because there's no way I can give you a full biblical understanding of all the issues I'm going to touch on in in three sermons. And and I'll just tell you ahead of time, these are going to be longer. These are going to be teaching sermons, and next week we've already plotted 40 minutes in the service for me to do that teaching. So it'll help you to have your Bible, to have something to write with and use that outline. And and there's really not an outline, just blank page for you to take a bunch of notes on as we study God's Word and think about this very important issue today. Now, I invite you to to open your Bible to the very first chapter of the Bible, the book of Genesis, chapter 1. We're going to begin at the very beginning. And there's three words I'm going to focus on this morning. Creation, authority, and design. Creation, authority, and design. Because everything the Bible teaches about sexual ethics, sexual morality about marriage. Those three words are important in understanding why the Bible says what it says. So notice how the Bible begins. Verse 1, Genesis 1, first words of your Bible. In the beginning, here's how it all started. God. Before there was anything, there was God. Before there was the universe, there was God. And the Bible says that God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. 
And then God said, let there be light. And there was light. And the remainder of chapter 1 is God saying, let there be, and the various parts of creation coming into existence. What the Bible teaches from the very beginning is that God is distinct from all of creation, from every part of creation. And when we talk about the holiness of God, we are talking about more than simply God's moral purity, God's perfection. That is part of it. When the Bible says God is holy, it means that God is separate from, God is distinct from. So the, you know, the, the thinking of a lot of people in our culture that, yeah, I believe there's a supreme being, there's this energy, there's this force that permeates all of creation is unbiblical. Because the Bible's teaching is that God is personal. God is distinct from. That is the reason when he created us as human beings in his image, he created us with personhood, with personality, with distinction. Because we are in his likeness, his image. God is holy. He is distinct from. And so you and I are not divine in any sense at all. None of the universe is. The universe, everything in it is part of the creation of God. And so the perfection of God and everything else grows out of that holiness, that distinctiveness, that otherness of God. Now, if you drop down to verse 26 in chapter 1, God said, let us make man in our image. And so it's not only the universe that, that God created, but he created humanity. He created us. Just as we are not God and God is distinct from us and God is distinct from creation, man is also not an animal, not in the biblical sense. Because God created us and only us in his image and in these same verses gives us dominion over the rest of creation. So man is the highest form of God's creation on earth. So God is distinct, but so is man. But only God is holy. God created so we. God created us, and we have a unique opportunity for relationship with him. And I love the way John in the book of Revelation says it in Revelation 4, 11. Look at that verse. He says, Worthy are you, O Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created, what? All things. And because of your, what? Will, they existed and were created. So, Creation is in keeping with the will of God. Now, here's the thing. Because God is creator, that means God is authority. It's the same as if I invent something, I create something, I own something, it's mine. I have authority. God is creator, that means God is Lord. God is owner. God is authority. God is judge. God is ultimate. And we are not. And to really understand what sin at its essence, at its very core is, you need to understand this. In a nutshell, sin and and, and every form of sin is rebellion against the authority of God as the creator of us, the creator of the universe, and therefore the authority, the owner, the Lord, the God, the judge, the king, the etc. of all. Ultimately, all sin is rooted in pride, a struggle to submit to who God is and to who we are in relation to God. 
It is a pride that wants to elevate us and in the process bring God down a little bit. At its basis, that's what sin is. You think about the origin of evil in the, in the universe. Jesus in the Gospels talked about seeing Satan fall from heaven, being cast out of, out of heaven. Satan being an angel created of God who in pride wanted to elevate himself and bring God down. And so the prophet Isaiah in his book, chapter 14, talked about that. In verses 13 and 14, referring to what Satan or Lucifer said in his heart, he said, You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. So at its core, sin is pride. That is the origin of evil, the origin of all sin that says, I'm going to elevate myself so that I am authority, so that I can do what I want, so that I can do what I feel, so that I can be what I like, and it brings God down. And so the idea that God is creator, the biblical teaching, the biblical theology of of God as the creator of the universe is central to everything because once you begin to weaken that and say God's not creator, God therefore is not authority, God therefore is not judge, therefore I'm not accountable, therefore I begin to elevate myself and what I want. That's why the Bible begins in the, the the very first verse, in the beginning... God. And God said, let there be. God is creator. God is authority. Mankind's very first sin, think about this, the very first sin of humanity. As told to us in Genesis chapter 3, God created Adam and Eve, placed them in the garden, said you can have all of this except that one thing. You can't eat the fruit of that one tree. A very powerful way of describing what sin really is. And in verse 1, the serpent, Satan, was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. And the serpent said to the woman, You will surely not die because once you can in someone's mind and heart diminish the authority of God in what God says the man is able to elevate himself as authority and therefore determine what is true and what is right and what is good, etc. The very first sin of humanity was the same sin that led Satan to rebel against God in heaven and be cast out. It's the sin of pride. It's the sin of questioning God. It's the sin of trying to elevate self and bring God down including bringing down what God actually says. Now, as followers of Jesus Christ, you and I accept who God is. He is creator of the universe. Therefore, he is the ultimate authority. He is Lord. He is God. And just as he said in the verse we looked at a moment ago, creation exists in keeping with the will of God. As part of that created order, we submit to the will of God, and the only way to know the will of God is to hear what God actually says, to hear what God says in his word. Now, what about the world? What about those in this world who 
do not accept God as creator, do not accept his authority. So what is the authority for them? If God and what he says is authority for us as followers of Jesus, what is authority for those who think otherwise? Essentially, it comes down to two things, reason and experience. And I could take one whole Sunday talking with you about the history, the philosophy going back through the centuries of how reason and experience have been used to undermine what God says. So reason, what I think, what I can understand, what I discover, what I learn, whether it's through science or any other venue, my intellect, my experience, what seems right to me, what I experience in community, what I experience in relationships, what I experience in my own life and with other people, and I somehow put those together, and that's the authority. Something has to be the authority for any decisions a human being makes. Now, as followers of Christ, we do not ignore experience. We do not ignore reason. We utilize them. But they are subservient to God. Whereas in the culture that does not accept God as creator and God as Lord, reason and experience are it. And even some who are religious will then subjugate the Bible to human reason, to human experience, and say, well, the Bible's just wrong. We'll talk about that in detail next Sunday. So as followers of Christ, that foundation so we can build a house in the weeks to come, understand who we are. We are followers of Jesus Christ who say he is the creator of the universe, therefore he is the Lord of all, King of kings, and we in relation to him are submissive to him and his will. And our understanding of ethics, our understanding of the world, our understanding of existence grow out of That relationship with him, our understanding of who God as creator is. Because if God is creator, then he is authority. But if God is not creator in your mind, you are the authority. And that's it in a nutshell. That's the foundation. But let's look at that third word, design. Back in Genesis chapter 1. Verse 26, God said what? Let us make man. Let us, referring to the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. I said a moment ago, only man is created in the image of God. And let them rule, the plural, them, rule over the fish of the sea, etc., have dominion. We're distinct from the rest of creation, have a special place. Verse 27, and God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, created him. Male and female, he created them. And in in that one verse, you begin to get a picture of God's design and creation and God's understanding of human sexuality. When God created humanity, he created them as male and female in his image. Now, Genesis chapter 1 is a general statement of creation. Genesis chapter 2 is a more detailed description of creation because in Genesis chapter 2, God creates Adam, places him in a garden, and Adam is lonely. And so in verse 18 of chapter 2, the Bible says, then God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable to him. He needs a companion. And he brings all the animals to them. Adam names the animal. And God says none of that, none of the rest of creation was an adequate companion for man. And so God creates a companion for Adam. And notice what he does starting at verse 21. God causes Adam to go to sleep. He takes a rib from him. He creates a woman and brings her in verse 22 to Adam. 
And in verse 23, Adam said, This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother, be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And there you have the biblical definition of God's design for creation and for sexuality. God's design for sexuality is a heterosexual relationship, male and female, within the confines of a covenant marriage. When he said at the end of that creation account they were naked and unashamed, it's referring to the fact there was no sin, so therefore they had no reason to be ashamed or feel guilty. And there was sexual purity. And everything else the Bible teaches from Genesis through Revelation about all forms of sexual sins and not, you know, homosexuality, adultery, premarital sex, pornography, and any other sexual issue grows out of this design of God in creation. Now, here's the thing. When God says that sex is to be a heterosexual experience within the boundaries of marriage, it means that any sexual behavior of any type outside that design is sin. So it's not just that homosexual behavior is sin. Adultery is a sin because it's outside that design. Sex between two people who are not married to each other is sin because it is outside that design. Pornography is a sin because it is outside that design, and you'll see it more clearly in a moment. Any sexual behavior outside the design of God for a heterosexual relationship between a man and a woman who are married to each other is outside the design of God and is therefore in Scripture sinful. So what God says about homosexuality that we're going to look at next Sunday grows out of this foundational truth of God's design for human sexuality. Now the problem is that in our church culture sometimes, we don't see the other sexual sins the way God sees them. We can, we can be really strong and clear on homosexuality, but over here, and all of them are deviations of the design of God at creation for human experience, for human relationships, for human sexuality. So I want to spend a few moments this morning building this foundation by looking at what God says in the Bible about sexual sins. Turn with me to the New Testament book of Matthew chapter 19. I want you to see that Jesus affirmed the definition of human sexuality that is given to us in Genesis chapters 1, 2 and following. Matthew 19 verses 4 and 5. Jesus answered and said, Have you not read, referring to Genesis, that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall be one flesh. Nothing new there other than just to remind us all. Jesus said that what Genesis says is correct. Well, that shouldn't surprise you because it's the Word of God. But some people say only what Jesus says matters, so I just want to focus on the fact Jesus said it, okay? Jesus said marriage 
and sexual relationships are a heterosexual experience between two people who are married to each other as husband and wife. Jesus affirmed that biblical definition. Now look in Matthew chapter 15 for a moment. Matthew 15 verse 19. Jesus again is teaching and he says it's out of the heart. Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. And here's what he's talking about. In his time, a lot of the Jewish people really focused on all these outer religious rituals. You know, you had to wash your hands a certain way to be religiously clean and pure and all of that. And sometimes in the church, we focus more on these outer rituals of, you know, godliness and so on than we do on having a godly heart that, that issues in godly behavior. It's what I've been talking about the last month in 1 Timothy chapter 1. For instance, all the hang-ups that some people have on all these do's and don'ts and religious stuff sometimes, we focus on that as signs of righteousness more than whether someone's heart is truly right with God and therefore their behavior demonstrates it. I mean, some people get more upset about what you do or do not wear to church, etc. You know, years ago, what you did or did not do on Sundays than whether or not you were morally good and had a heart that was good and kind and righteous. That's what they were doing. And so Jesus said, it's not these outward rituals that make a person good or bad. He said, it's what's in your heart that ultimately comes out in your behavior. It's on the inside. And so in verse 19, he talks about adulteries and fornications. I want us to look at those two words for just a minute. The word translated in my Bible, adulteries, is that's the uh, transliteration of the Greek word um, that is translated. It, it, it means particularly uh, the sexual unfaithfulness of someone who is married. So it's what we mean when we usually say the word adultery. The other word, fornication, sometimes translated in our Bibles as immorality, is the word pornea. Pornea comes from a root word in the Greek language that means to sell something. So it came to be used for selling your purity, selling your sexual purity, giving it away, if you will, through sexual sin. And we we get our word pornography from that word. It's a very broad word that refers to any and every sexual behavior that is outside the confines of God's design for human sexuality. So while there's a specific word for adultery, adultery is also pornea. Sex before marriage is pornea. Pornography is pornea. Homosexuality is pornea. It's any sexual immorality, impurity, because it is outside the design of God for human sexuality between a heterosexual couple and a covenant marriage. Now I want you to understand that Jesus, in talking about these issues, did not lower the standard, he elevated the standard. See, a lot of focus in the homosexual debate is on, hey, you Christians, Jesus said love everybody, and Jesus said love your enemies, do good to them, etc., And he did. But in our culture, love many times is pretty cheap because rather than honestly dealing with sin, love, the way our culture defines it, ignores sin. God's love is so deep 
that it cannot ignore sin. It has to deal with it. That's why Jesus went to the cross. He didn't ignore it. He loved us enough to not pretend it wasn't there. He loved us enough to do something about it. So the way the culture defines God's love is unbiblical. Look at what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, his Sermon on the Mount, verses 27 and 28. Jesus said in verse 27, You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. See, it's easy to focus just on the outside. But Jesus said what comes from the heart also matters. Because adultery on the outside begins on the inside, right? Always. Every single time. Every sin does. And so Jesus said the heart matters. And what Jesus is doing here is the same Jesus who talks about love and so doing does not lower the standard of ethic, the standard of morality, the standard of human sexuality. The same Jesus who talks about love says love is costly, love is beautiful, love is incredible. He elevates the standard. He doesn't lower it. He raises it. The same Jesus who affirmed what Genesis said about a heterosexual relationship elevates God's expectations of us. Now, turn to the book of 1 Corinthians. I want us to look at some verses there real quickly. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I want you to remember that Greek word pornea that's translated fornication or immorality most of the time in our Bibles. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 1. Paul writing to the church in the city of Corinth, he says, It is actually reported that there is immorality, pornea, among you, and immorality, pornea, of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles. He said, in that one local church, there was a sexual sin that you'd even hear talked about very much out there in the world. That someone has his father's wife. There was a member of the church who was sleeping with his stepmom. There's no specific Greek word in the New Testament for that sexual sin. The Greek word pornea, this broad word that covers all forms of sexual sin, covers it because what he was doing was wrong on many, many levels. It was a deviation from God's design for human sexuality, pornea. Now look also in chapter 6, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 13, verse 13. He says, food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. In other words, when we make it to heaven... You don't have to eat because you're hungry, okay? You remember there's a resurrected body, a glorified body. We'll never be weak, never be hungry. I like to think of it as uh, we can eat because we want to and never gain weight. But it won't be like here on earth. It's the same reason Jesus said in heaven there's no marriage. Marriage and human sexuality are for this world and this existence, not for heaven. A different form of existence there. That also points to our ultimate loyalty as followers of Christ is to the kingdom of God, not to this world. But that's another whole sermon. 
So I love the way Paul said it in Romans to help us understand the Christian view. He said, I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh, all these impulses we have. For just as you presented your members, the parts of your body, as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness resulting in further lawlessness. In other words, the more you sin, the more addicted to sin you become, right? The more you do something wrong, the easier it is to do something wrong. And the more addicted you become, the more enslaved you become, the more difficult it is to free yourself from it. That's the reason the idea, and young people hear this, the idea that you can experiment with different things, there's no risk in that, you're playing with dynamite because there is addiction. There, that's, that's exactly what he's talking about there. Sin enslaves us. So he says, what we do as followers of Christ is so now, right now, now that I've made a decision to be a, be a Christian, to be a follower of Christ, now that I'm converted, present your bodies, the members of your body, the parts of your bodies as slaves to righteousness resulting in sanctification. That's the reason the book of Corinthians, Paul said, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Glorify God in your body. Because these sexual sins you commit with your body, you commit against the temple of God, against the Holy Spirit of God. Now, 1 Corinthians 6 again. Look at verse 9. Verse 9. He said, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, pornia, idolaters, nor adulterers, the same word Jesus used in Matthew's gospel for adultery, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals. Now next Sunday when we look at those Bible passages that talk about homosexuality, we're going to look at those two Greek words. What do we mean by homosexual and what do we mean by effeminate? We'll study that next Sunday morning. Nor thieves, nor, nor, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, uh, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So, pretty strong statement. Does that mean if you've ever gotten drunk, you can't go to heaven? Does that mean if you've ever committed adultery, you can't go to heaven? He talks about stealing. Does that mean if you've ever stolen something? And by the way, if you lie on your income tax, you're stealing. You can never go to heaven. Does that mean if someone has ever committed a homosexual act, they can never go to heaven? Well, he continues. Such were some of you. This is how you used to live. But you've been washed. Was that old hymn? Are you washed in the blood? <laughs> you've been washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of God. I wish I had a sermon just for that one verse. He's saying before you made the conscious decision to commit your life to Jesus Christ and become a follower of Christ, some of these things describe some of you. So yes, someone can go to heaven who's committed any of these sins because there is conversion, there is repentance, there is forgiveness. Without repentance... And without conversion, there is no heaven for anyone. Is it possible that someone can be a Christian and commit one of these sins? Yes. But it will not be your lifestyle. 
Because the Bible says when you are converted, you change. You are transformed. We're not perfect. We sin. So, yes, we may commit a sin and a sin that's in this list. But the Bible says we don't habitually, continually live in that lifestyle. And that's a whole other sermon in another book of the Bible. So if someone goes to church and says, I'm a Christian, but, man, they have affair after affair after affair, they're lost and going to hell. They're not saved. If someone is religious and goes to church, but they steal and they steal and they steal and they lie and they lie and they lie and they lie, they're lost and going to hell. They're not saved and going to heaven. None of it's an habitual lifestyle. If someone is religious and goes to church, and they're active in the homosexual lifestyle, and they don't repent and come out of that, he says here, if that's their lifestyle, they'll not inherit the kingdom of God because conversion brings about transformation. This is what you were. But you were washed, justified. You've been changed. You're different. If you follow Christ, if he's in your life. Now it's interesting. This list of sins are all about bodily impulses. I want, I need, I desire, I feel. When I steal, when I commit adultery, whatever, it's all, even the homosexual arguments, all about feelings. It's all about what is on the inside coming out and if reason and experience are the authority for your life instead of the creator God and his revealed will through his word then you follow your impulses instead of submitting to the revelation of God who is the authority as the creator of you and the universe does that make sense Paul said it this way in Galatians chapter 5, verse 19. He said the deeds of the flesh, these impulses. Jesus said it's the things that come out of us. The deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, pornea, impurity, a Greek word for uh, anything that makes you religiously or morally dirty. Sensuality, that Greek word means a lack of restraint. So basically it means if you feel it, do it. If you want it, get it. The Bible says that and the justification for behavior that grows out of those things is sinful. It's a deed of the flesh and it's a sign of pride that wants to argue with who God is and who you are in relationship to God as creator and authority. Now one last verse because I'm out of time. We've gone a little bit late and I appreciate your patience. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. Let me wrap this up. He said, I wrote to you in my letter, a previous letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians that we don't have. He said, I wrote to you in, an, in my letter not to associate with immoral people. That's pornea, sexual immorality. But notice what he said in verse 10. Not at all mean with immoral people in the world. Now listen to that. He said, I wrote to you not to hang out with immoral people, sexual 
people who are guilty of sexual immorality. But I did not mean in verse 10 by that the immoral people, the pornea people in this world or with the covetous and swindlers and idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. You'd have to, you'd have to leave this earth to do that. Verse 11, what I actually wrote, but, but here's, here's what I meant. So, but actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother, a church member, somebody who claims to be a Christian. If he is an immoral person, sexually immoral, covetous, an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, a swindler, not even to eat with one. Pretty strong words. Verse 12, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? those outside the church. Do you not judge those who are within the church? Then he says in verse 13, those who are outside, God judges. Then he has removed the wicked man, the one in the church, from among yourselves. You know, here's what he's saying. You and I made a decision to commit our lives to Jesus Christ. And when we did, we accepted that God is creator, God is authority, and we are subservient, we are submissive. When we became a follower of Jesus Christ, we were saying that our worldview, our ethics, our morality is His revealed will, not our flesh and our impulses. Therefore, we hold ourselves accountable to the commitment we made as followers of Jesus Christ. The world, the people who are lost in this culture, they have never made that commitment. They have never owned Jesus as Creator, as Lord. And therefore, we are not to hold them accountable to something they've never committed themselves to. It doesn't mean we don't publicly speak the truth and teach people God's revealed will for sexual relationships. But it's not my role or your role to hold the lost world accountable to standards they don't accept. What he says here is he will do that. It says God will judge them. And that judgment will be real and it will be severe and it will really, really 